Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. Triad has a great relationship with the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. The National Council advocates for policies that ensure that people with mental health and substance use challenges have access to comprehensive, high-quality services. National Council is involved with over 3,500 mental health and substance use treatment organizations and serve more than 10 million children, adults, and families. They advocate for policies to ensure equitable access to high-quality services and promote a greater understanding of mental well-being as a core component of comprehensive health care. I'm sure a number of you have listened to our shows prior with podcasts from folks from National Council, including Joe Parks, National Council's medical director, or with Aaron Williams, their integrated care consultant and senior advisor. Or maybe you caught our show with Shannon Mace, a senior advisor at the National Council. Or maybe you tuned into our show most recently with Isla Colella, one of the senior directors at National Council. We had a great opportunity in those podcasts to better understand their role and their contribution to National Council's work. Well, today I'm excited to have Raina Taylor with me as we talk about her position and unique work with the National Council. Raina is the Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy. She leads public policy and government affairs activities, supervises legislative matters, and guides overall public policy strategies at the state and federal level. Raina, I want to welcome you to our show. Nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And Graham, I I couldn't be happier to be here today and talk to you about kind of what's going on with National Council from the public policy lens. But I also just want to thank you all for your support and what you do for the behavioral health community. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. It's uh, kind of right back at you. So thanks for that. You know, as we focus our show today, Raina, on your work and policy and implementation of these things and the various roles that you have, as we get started, I'd like to have our audience know that you had a professional life prior to coming into National Council. I know you've got a Bachelor's of Science in Neuroscience from Bates College. You have two master's degrees in Biotechnology and Business Administration from John Hopkins. What were you doing prior to coming into National Council? And then what led you into your position now? Well, it's interesting you asked that, Graham, because I grew up on the Hill. I, I literally lived 10 blocks from where my parents' home was and where I grew up on Capitol Hill. And I will say I I ran from it because I saw what was going on and I thought, oh my goodness, it's it's so hard to make things happen on the Hill. I don't understand. And so I went in the road of science and you're right. I went to neuroscience. I went to research. I went to patient advocacy. I went to a corporate entity that would sort of allow me to have those developments. And What I found was the real way to make a difference in the lives of people living with mental health and substance use was on the policy side. And so Mm -hmm. the years I spent in research and trying to understand how to make a difference as it relates to patient advocacy, I found, oh, goodness, if I can shape policy, that's how I can really make a change. So a city I ran away from drew me back. (laughs) Drew you back. (laughs) That's really good. We kind of come back home sometimes kind of full circle, but it sounds like maybe once discouraged and running from somehow something shifted and you thought maybe I could be involved in some ways that might bring about some change that maybe you were hoping for before. Tell us what's kind of been renewed in you in terms of that hope around that. My previous career was in corporate and understanding that like patient advocacy and patient assistance 
and redoing the models of that in order to make sure that people have access to care was quite important to me. Now, the understanding that that can also be in conjunction with the change of public policy made me understand that, okay, those two go together, advocacy and policy, yeah. which in that previous life is where I met Chuck Angolia, our wonderful CEO. And when he was becoming CEO, he reached out and said, hey, you have a devotion and a passion towards patient advocacy. Come be here. Come make a difference. And I said, absolutely. Another layer, if you wouldn't mind, why the passion there? Where'd that come from? So I think the passion came from making the the difference again in public policy. I saw it in the research aspect. I saw it when I was doing patient advocacy for my, my previous roles. But what I couldn't see is how you actually make systemic change. And that systemic change comes from making a difference in public policy and then the implementation of that public policy across the field in the U.S., so I traveled our nation over looking at clinics that dealt with mental health and substance use. I looked at what was going on and I saw a need for change. And so here we are with what the CDC says is a mental health and substance use crisis. And now yeah. I am here to make a difference. Why do you personally care so much? I, I think that it all, always comes back to what it is and what it means to be an advocate for people who at their heart can't advocate for what they need. Yeah. And being able to see that not only through family and substance use, but being able to see that in family and you know mental health and crisis situations, but being able to see that they can't get care that they need. If I'm at the position where I am and I have trouble with navigating our system, imagine what it's like for the average yeah. person out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So two parts of that. One sounds like it's about giving voice to and for those that can't give it to themselves for one reason or another. But also it sounds like helping them not just receive the needs that they have, but maybe helping them reach the potential they've got to reach with some help and some aid. You know, we talk about policy, we talk about advocacy, and those are kind of cool words, but there's a lot that goes into them. Would you be willing to kind of mine down a little bit? I know your po policy and advocacy include government affairs, legislative matters, and strategizing at both, as I mentioned, the federal and state levels. Tell us what that means and what your day-to-day -day looks like, and what are some of the things that you're doing? So interestingly, on like a day-to-day -day basis, let's be clear, I sometimes call it the wonderful system of our Congress that for the best of reasons moves slowly in order to ensure that things happen correctly. When they move that slowly, you have to sort of press them in ways to say, I hope you would move faster. When they don't, you also understand that there are times where I get that, that there are things that take time and guardrails that need to be put. Yes. So from a day-to-day -day basis, I would say that when I'm looking at the federal changes, we keep our eyes on this wonderful, and I, I say this again, wonderful interest from both the House and the Senate and even the administration on what we do to improve the mental health and substance use system across our nation. Also, that that happens naturally on the federal level, yeah. it is also happening on the state level. And so what I would say is that it has to happen in both systems. Got it. So what happens on the state will then kind of have ripple effects on the federal. What happens on the federal side will also have ripple effects on the state. And what that means is that if we see the passion behind changing the system for mental health and substance use, both on the federal side and on the state side, 
we have a real opportunity to make a difference in the change of that system. And that is what we monitor on a day-to-day basis. Well, that's really exciting. It sounds like part of the work uh, is not just with the understanding of things too, but there's an art that sounds like kind of the almost the art of gentle nudging, <laughs> where you're having to kind of gently nudge and keep an edge on and gently push in, in, in right ways to help things move and progress in, in ways that are right for people to benefit from the things you're advocating for. It's really good. I know one of the programs that you guys have involvement with, and I'm curious about your role, both in the public policy around it and the advocacy of it, is one of your programs, I think one of the most stellar programs with National Council, and that's your certified community behavioral health clinics. And for our listeners, these are approved Medicaid-funded behavioral health clinics, and they're established to expand services to the underinsured and also to uninsured. And Raina, truly, you guys have thought outside the box as these clinics are a new provider type, really, in Medicaid. And they're designed to provide a comprehensive range of mental health and substance use disorder services. And in return, what happens is that these clinics, they receive an enhanced Medicaid reimbursement rate based on their cost of expanding services to meet the needs of the complex populations. Explain to us how you're involved maybe with these clinics as well, and maybe through policy work and practice management and implementation with the work that these clinics do. So you're right. There, there has been a fundamental change since 2017 when the inception of the CCBHCs or the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics became part of the demonstration project that Senator Stabenos and Senator Blunt introduced. And with that came eight states. And back in 2017, that eight states had 66 clinics. To your point, being able to pay for the services that a provider gives to meet a community where they are. Yes. It's not a novel concept. It is honestly just addressing the needs, the mental health and substance use challenges in communities through a model that actually will create the kind of data subset to say it works. Yes. And that back in 2017 started with those eight states, and those 66 clinics. We fast forward to 2021, 2022. We're 40 plus states with 440 plus clinics. What this means is that we have created a model that will address the care and access to care that people living in our communities with mental health and substance use need to be able to achieve mental well being and that road towards recovery. And so, by having that model in place, and seeing the forward progress of that, even in the past few years, Congress is now saying, what can we look at? What has shown us a proven effect to make sure that people can have access to care when and where they need it? And therefore, they are seeing that CCBHCs are meeting that need. So we do see an unprecedented amount of attention focused on the CCBHC model from Congress, both in the House and the Senate. And even in the administration, President Biden, in his plan for fiscal year 2023, talked about the CCBHC model and the road towards what he says is permanency. So we hope that what we are seeing is this uptake and need for the ability to use a model that has a proven approach to treat people where they are in the communities, makes an impact for the future for mental health and substance use. 
Yeah, that's phenomenal. For listeners to these clinics, it's kind of a nonprofit organization structured, and, and they directly provide nine types of services with an emphasis on the provision of 24-hour crisis care, evidence-based practices are used, care coordination with local and primary care and hospital partners, and the integration with other physical health care facilities. It's phenomenal. So tell me, Raina here, so you've gone in a small handful of years, you've added 32 states and you've added over 380 clinics. It's phenomenal. What were you doing to help grow it in this manner that has your handprint on it and some of the things you guys were doing in advocacy and policy? Well, I'll be honest, I can't take credit for the growth of it. I think it's the growth of the communities that go through the application process to become yeah. part of the CCBHC system. I will say from a congressional point of view, we we have the grant awards to be able to extend this to additional states. We got two more states added in terms of the demonstration project in 2020. All of this to say that Congress has put additional effort into making this happen. But this is about the community and the people there that are creating these clinics to make sure that they can, as you said, meet the criteria that becomes a CCDHC, but also understanding that we are there as help in terms of technical assistance and whatever is needed to be able to make sure that we can increase the number of people who are able to meet the CCDHC criteria. And that also says there is an aspect to our community that we need to say it's needed and it's time and they are willing to be a piece of what makes access to care easier for people living with mental health and substance use. Yeah. When you talk about the levels of care and the needs being met, these clinics are available to individuals in need of care, including people with serious mental health illnesses, serious emotional disturbances, long-term chronic addictions, mild or moderate mental health illnesses and substance use disorders, complex health profiles. And the services are provided through these clinics, regardless of their ability to pay, caring for those who are underserved, have low incomes, are insured, uninsured, or on Medicaid, and even those that are on active duty military, even veterans. So this is a phenomenal program. I I, I hope our listeners appreciate just what you all are doing and creating here, because it is outstanding. The program is designed to meet the community. where they are. So so even if the community has different cultures, different languages being spoken, the providers and care meet people where they are. And how helpful could that be to meet someone where they are, to give them the opportunity and a closer grasp on reaching both recovery and mental well-being? We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com slash bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com slash bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. 
Yeah, that's really good. You know, you, you said it earlier in our show, and it's such a good point. For those that are, let's say, not struggling with acute struggles, it's already a challenge to access care. It, it, just, it just is sometimes. And you're talking about how these clinics are set up to meet the needs of those that are struggling and challenged in certain ways. But I want to go just a little bit further. Some of the research I did around the clinics is includes access to and wait times for needed care. You're talking about accessibility and being able to be seen. And that's always been a challenge for mental health and substance use challenges. In fact, the average wait time for services nationwide is 48 days. That's a long time. But your community care clinics have reduced sharply this wait time. 50% of clinics can provide the same day access to care. That is so noteworthy. And 84% of patients are seen one week from their scheduled first appointment. That's phenomenal. And what I read also was 93% are seen within 10 days. This is just truly a significant improvement in one's access to care and making it convenient for people to be seen when they're most in need. This also brings up a good point because we have done that. We continue to do that. That is part of the foundation of our model. Yeah. What what we do need to look for, and I I hope in future podcasts you talk about this, is the implementation of 988 because there will be a need in the future for that same day access and continuation of care. And this, this model can provide that, but we also need to make sure that there's an entire system set up so that when 988, meaning the new three-digit suicide hotline yes. comes into play, that we will be able to respond to it and allow everyone who calls in to have the access to care that they need. Yeah, that'd be great. We had a we had the privilege of meeting with the two congressmen that put that through uh, on our podcast. Great time with these guys, great forward thinkers, changed all of our need to type in our area code first. But nonetheless, it provides a phenomenal service for those in need and a nationwide one three-digit you know, number to be able to call. But I can also see where you're saying that access to that kind of care is going to be part of your clinics and how we're going to build that in when that becomes active. That's really good. You know, there are a lot of unique mental health challenges going on in our nation today. Do you see, you know, I know you've got your, you know, ear to the community needs and legislative priorities you know, not to, not to mention your own diagnostic understanding of things or what's going on. What what do you see being some of the mental health issues, particular areas in mental health treatment that might need to expand in the near future? Maybe even any policies you kind of have seen coming down the line here. So I, I would say there there are a few. I mean, obviously we all know, and I I can't not address what COVID has done to exacerbate an already existing mental health crisis. And so when we we look at that as well as what was considered an opioid crisis, but is now an overdose crisis. We have to address both of them. And so I think what we need to look at is in the future of what you are articulating before as a workforce shortage with a demand increase, meaning there's a demand for services for both mental health and substance use that is coming across our communities. There is also a workforce shortage, much much like every other area in our nation is kind of suffering from right now. But the problem is that if we have a workforce shortage in mental health and substance use with a demand increase, we lose people. We lose Americans. And so when we look at the recent CDC data with over 100,000 
overdose deaths. We have to understand that we are losing people at a rate that we need to do something drastically to stop. We also look at a possible kind of mental health and suicide crisis that also exists. So that means that we need to strengthen the system. And I will be honest, that is what we are seeing from our Congress. They're realizing this too, that we are absolutely facing both a mental health and substance use crisis. And so when we see it from both the House, the Senate, and the administration, we know that we have touched the hearts of people that will make change. And so what we hope to see in the future is what change they will make happen. We have seen in this crisis that telehealth has been one area in which we have been able to keep people engaged in services. We need to see what that looks like towards the end of the public health emergency and what that will look like in terms of other provisions, in terms of flexibilities around prescribing and cross-state abilities to treat that will continue to help people as we work towards both a workforce crisis as well as the mental health and substance use crisis. I really like that. You know, when we think of uh, prevention, we think of, you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And what you're talking about primarily is creating the secondary, but mostly tertiary, you know, the response to a crisis already there, a response to needs already there, and building programs around the needs that are being seen. And that's always going to part of the challenges you're saying, how are we going to expand this workforce to meet the need being present? Do you guys get into, or maybe even policy and advocacy, get into primary prevention where it would be strengthening a system so that the causes of these mental illnesses, overdoses, crises, et cetera, are being addressed as well? So in a way, we we look at it again in every sector as a continuum. So meaning like if you're looking at it from the workforce crisis, we'll take that to begin We look at it from the development of how do you entice people to come into our workforce, meaning do you have a passion, an interest around mental health and substance use? Are you a peer? Can we talk about being a peer specialist? Can we then kind of get that reimbursement done or the loan repayment for getting certification? Really good. Good. Then the next continuum becomes that's good to develop, but what are we doing for the current workforce? So can we expand it? Can we expand Medicare reimbursement? Can we also, in a way, retain the workforce we currently have? Meaning they have been through so much. Is there a way that we can have a retention bonus in a way to say Mm -hmm. mental health, substance use professionals, you have done your job. We want to keep you. And we want to make sure that your experience is shared with others that we are developing. Yeah. And at the end, the end is the mental well-being of the workforce we have. Yeah. We have to make sure that while we are giving care in terms of mental health and substance use challenges to people that come to us, we also have the ability to give care to the providers who are doing that work. So yeah. that becomes the angle that we see in that continuum. We see that from what needs to happen in the community. Therefore, we look for policies that do the same, whether it is loan reimbursement whether it is a bonus retention, whether it is expanding Medicare reimbursement for people who are who are not yet kind of able to be reimbursed for Medicare services, whether it is, and this is the key, establishing how we give back to a community that has served others in terms of their mental well-being. Really good. Uh, you know, the, the care we provide is only going to be 
proportional to the health of the providers providing it. And I think you're addressing it in that way is, is really noteworthy. Thinking about it as you're talking, you're talking about ways to care for, nurture, retain an expanded workforce that's going to be necessary. In addition to that, do you folks ever address maybe even at a primary prevention level through national council, speaking with Congress or the Senate about what governmental policies might be supported by you folks or advocated by you folks to address what the root of the problems may be? Do you guys get down to that piece? We absolutely do. So I will say that every part of that continuum are pieces of legislation we look at, whether or not it is the kind of loan repayment, as we were talking about, for um, both mental health and substance use services as people are kind of coming into the fruition of, of making sure that they're wanting to become part of our workforce. Yeah. I would also say, and that's like the mental health professionals workforce shortage loan repayment act. There's also the national health service Corps and substance mm -hmm. disorder workforce loan repayment. There are many loan repayment acts. What we're talking about now, and we talked about it before are there areas that we can talk about? And when Senate Finance is talking about this package and has requested information on areas that we can do, one of those areas is workforce. And one of the areas we talk about that does help with workforce is what we can go back to, which is the Excellence in Mental Health and Addiction Treatment Act, which codifies CCBHCs and allows any state to become a CCBHC. In that, it allows for the workforce development piece and allowing for the retention of a workforce by using their enhanced kind of match to be able to keep their workforce going. Another aspect would be kind of the retention of that workforce and being able to give kind of a retention bonus in a way to allow for the supplemental attraction that keeps a person yeah. in their position as they are going through what I can only imagine has been a hard few years. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Kind of caring for the provider. Those are great, great focuses that you have. You know, I know we're kind of beginning to wind down a wee bit here, but you know, you've been with National Council for a while now. And I'd be curious as your experience and all the different things you're doing, which are pretty noteworthy. Have there been some really proud moments, maybe even including a story you might share with us from some of the work you're doing that you really have enjoyed and been proud of as a group? You know, you're asking what I'm proud of, and I will yeah. say it makes me happy. We just had our national convention a few weeks ago, which we call NatCon, and we brought together people for the first time in several years in person. And the ability to share their stories, to be able to hear each other, to be able to understand and empathize with what each other has been through yeah. that that emotional well-being is one of the proudest moments that i've seen just to be able to see people interact again and have that hey i've been through this have you been through this let's share that to me was well worth every moment that i spent in and you probably did too in isolation for the past few years yeah. So I would say that, you know, bringing people together, even Dr. Gupta from ONDCP, as I'm walking him to a session at NatCon, remarked, he was like, it is so nice to see people talking. To you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, just face to face. Yeah. And so I think 
you're asking me what I'm proud of. I would just say what makes me happy and, and hope that other people can find something that makes them happy when they're thinking about what we're doing in terms of making change for people living with mental health and substance use. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. You guys have a lot to be proud of. We have, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, had a number of folks from National Council on the, on the podcast thus far, and each one of you are doing a phenomenal dynamic set of things to bring about some really needed services, keeping the workforce strong, expanding it as needed, meeting the community where they're at, making access to care very accessible and convenient and straightforward. So really, really, really well done. I, I'm, I'm so impressed with each one of you that we've had a chance to have on our show. Raina, as we kind of come to the close of our show today, I would love to have our listeners uh, learn from you how to get in touch with the National Council and maybe even learn more about you and your work there. Give us uh, some sites that you'd recommend them take a look at. Yeah. If you're interested in the CCBHCs, we have a yeah. website that is the CCBHC sort of success center. And so I would say if you went to the nationalcouncil.org website, you would be able to then filter for the CCBHC Success Center, learn a little bit more about that program, but also go there and check out our policy. If yes. you get engaged, our voices are stronger together, and we welcome every voice out there in the community that wants to stand up for people living with mental health and substance use. Get involved, talk to each other, come join us. We are more than happy to have our voices being heard together. So, yeah, Rena, that's so good. You guys have a phenomenal website. It's so thorough, it's got so many offerings, very, very clear to navigate and, and, and again, learn about the service you guys are providing. So, thank you for giving that to us. And uh, for those looking at the CCBHCs, take a look at these clinics, folks. They, they are phenomenal to see if that's something might be that in your state could be applicable and beneficial to those in need. Well, Raina, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real joy to meet you and to learn more about what you're doing with National Council. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I hope this is just the start of a continuous conversation. And thank I you would for agree. doing too. I would agree. Thank you. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Raina and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other podcasts can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. So go check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash bht, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.